Hello and welcome to Employment Talk, the HR issues affecting you. We're here to keep you up to date with the latest employment law matters. My name's Glenn Hayes, I'm the National Head of Employment Law at Irwin Mitchell. And I'm Jo Mosley and I'm a support lawyer here. I thought today, Glenn, we'd talk about quiet quitting, which seems to be in vogue at the moment. It's a really strange phrase. It isn't about people leaving their jobs without making a fuss, which is what I thought it might be to start off with. Instead, it sort of reflects the attitude of people. Um, so they do the work that's required of them in their working hours, but no more than that. So we're really talking here about people who just sort of turn up, do the bare minimum and then go home again. Is that right? Yes, but it's not limited to them. So you'll get some people who will do as little as they can get away with, but there'll be others who will work hard, but will have fixed boundaries. So they might, so they'll start um, and leave on time. And even if they haven't done all of their work. So in the same, same sort of um, context, they won't respond to emails or out of hours calls either. And they'll also take their allocated breaks and they might also want to take advantage of any additional holiday that they can buy from their employer if their employer offers it. So, Glenn, have you seen any evidence of quiet quitting in practice? And if so, can you generalise about the types of workers which are more likely to have this type of attitude? Well, yeah, I mean, Joe, I think following the lockdown and COVID and the sort of rise in people working from home, this is definitely something that's on the rise. Um, so what we've tend to see in our sort of client base really is is a number of people who literally, like, as you say, turn up at nine o'clock, they switch their um, computer off at 12 o'clock, have their hours lunch uh, break, log back on at one o'clock, finish at five and literally do the bare minimum. So we are seeing quite a lot of that happening. And the problem for employers, of course, is that, you know, in theory, the people are just working the contracted hours and doing what they're, what they're required to do. That's not what really happened in the past. And and yes, it is a sort of generational thing, I think. So certainly the evidence that we've seen suggests that it's sort of the younger generation that's more prone to doing this. Originally, sort of I expected to see people who were sort of approaching retirement being the sort of um, people who it sort of affected the most. But actually, it's the other way. It's people in the sort of age group of sort of 18 to 29, which um, seem to be affected the most by this and who the, the ones that we're advising clients in relation to. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? I think they call them Gen, Gen Z. And from what I've read, they don't see it as a negative thing at all. They just see work in a different way. They want more out of it and they don't want work to define them. So the idea, I suppose, is that work isn't the be all and end all. And I don't necessarily think it means they're uncommitted to the work that they're doing either, although of course they could be, nor does it mean that they're doing a poor job. So there was a um, some survey done a little while ago by YouGov and only 5% of the Gen Z, so those sort of 18 to 29 year olds, said that they had mentally checked out of their job. So it's not we're not talking here about huge numbers. But I suppose it's still a significant number, given that the difficulties employers are having at the moment with regard to recruiting and retaining good staff. Yeah, it's a different mindset thing, though, isn't it, Joe? I mean, look, I'm, sadly, I'm not in that Gen Z category at, at the age of 45. But, you know, ultimately, when I came into my profession, the idea was to, to sort of listen, learn, do as much work as you can, you know, learn quickly and, and try and progress. And not everybody wants that now, which is fine. It's a it's a choice that people make. But I think it does impact on people's career choices and the progress realistically, because, you know, if an employer is looking at various different people and deciding whether somebody 
should we put forward for a promotion, for example, or um, given a bonus or, you know, those types of things, then clearly they're going to look at an individual's entire performance. And that includes, you know, what output they get from that particular individual. And I think what is interesting about this type of type of phenomenon is quite quickly is that the the output levels have gone down, you know, not not surprisingly, quite frankly, because people aren't necessarily working to rule, but they're not a million miles off it. It's not entirely clear, is it, how widespread it is um, or whether it's sort of centred on particular types of work. So whether we're talking about professionals here or we're talking about blue collar workers, I don't think we've actually got the stats that drill down on that. Um, we do know from the survey that Gen Z and millennials, 67% um, said that they should only do the work that they are paid for and nothing else, which I thought was a pretty high number, actually. Um, yeah. If you compare that to 60 year olds, 30 percent of those shared the same view and people in my age category of 50 to 59, although I'm not telling you which part of that I'm in, um, that's 43 percent. So 43 percent of those people thought that they should only do what they get paid to do. So, you know, it's it, it sounds as if there's a bit of a shift between, you know, people doing whatever's expected of them in order to get the job done and just doing what's required and what they're paid to do. I think part of it is COVID related though, Joe, because if you think about the context of being people being in an office and feeling part of a team, you know, you you work together as part of the team. You really club in to try and get a particular job or a task done. You feel a sense of satisfaction at the end of the day and you might even go out for a beer or whatever to celebrate it. Well, I don't think that really exists now because if you're sitting at your kitchen table or in your, you know, in your back bedroom or whatever, then I don't think that sort of sense of belonging is necessarily there. And I think, you know, that ability to just switch off the computer rather than mucking like everybody else and roll your sleeves up, I think it's probably more prevalent now. Um, and I, I do think, what will happen is that in a sort of situation that we're facing at the minute with sort of economic crises and the like, I, I think employers will find it difficult to pay people to hefty pay rises anyway. And I think they'll have to steal from Peter to pay Paul type thing. So, you know, mm. who would you pay in that situation? Would you pay the guys who are really putting in a shift for you or or the guys that are logging off at five o'clock? Mm. You know, I think I know what, what I would do. It's difficult, isn't it? Because I suppose in the context of unionised workplaces, they are negotiating for pay increases for their, you know, for their whole workforce. They're not picking and choosing who gets, you know, 5% and who gets 1%. Yeah, well, clearly, I mean, it's different by industry without a shadow of a doubt because, you know, but again, if there's some flexibility around that, then I think employers will will use the opportunity to, to invoke that flexibility, and I think they might need to. Mm. And but of course, it could lead to the sort of things that you're alluding to there in terms of uh, industrial relations issues, strikes, which are clearly on the horizon at the minute for for many different industries, and um, something that employers are grappling with uh, across, you know, all kinds of industries like manufacturing, education, you know, public sector, et cetera, et cetera. So. To, to me, it, it, it is and could become a very, very big issue. Mm. You mentioned, Glenn, um, earlier about work to rule, and that, of course, was something that we saw quite a lot of in the um, 1970s. And I suppose from a legal point of view that it, it's, it's fine if, if as an individual you decide that you are going to stick to the terms of your contract, so you're just going to do what's required. But if it's a if it's a sort of coordinated approach uh, generated, for example, by a 
um, union, then that would in itself constitute industrial action and they would need to balance, wouldn't they? Yeah, I mean, it's a, I think we are seeing this type of thing coming through now. I mean, clearly there's every day you turn on the news and there's, there's information about people. It's not just about pay, it's about sort of working conditions and hours. And I think it's going to, that's only going to get worse in the near future, in my view. We seem to be a very unhappy country at the moment. Well, a lot of people are feeling unmotivated, Joe, and I think that facts into all of this. So, you know, if if you are motivated, then I don't think the concept of quiet quitting really comes in. So, you know, I think it's really important for employers who are concerned about this in, in, in their workforce to really try and find best ways to motivate their staff. You know, and there's a variety of different ways you can do it. Obviously, paying benefits is one, but not all employers would be able to afford to do that. So, you know, is there some easy wins that employers could take? So, for example, should you be conducting surveys to your workforce? You know, should you be holding employee forums to find out how engaged your staff are to at least then try and do something about that? Should you be benchmarking your paying benefits to ensure that you're pitching this at the right level? So I think the whole process of the, the sort of great resignation slash refreshers sort of calming down a bit. But, you know, again, that does factor into all this. Mm. You know, what are your expectations on staff to put in hours of unpaid overtime? You know, that'll be different by industry, I'm absolutely sure. You know, how transparent is that promotion or development process uh, in place? So, you know, in our industry, for example, if people are uh, seeking to be promoted, then there's a clear pathway for them to do so. There's, there's generally... Uh, objectives that they'd be expected to hit both sort of uh, fee income and things like uh, client development and business development type processes you know clearly line managers have got a really important part to play in that both in terms of the stick and carrot so you know dangling the stick for that promotion for example to get the best out of people but also uh, sorry dangling the carrot in order to get the best out of people rather than um, just thrashing the stick around in a sort of performance management way, which might be appropriate, Joe, to be fair, if people are doing the, the sort of bare minimum and, and working to rule. Uh, because if it does fall below an accept, accepted uh, level of performance, then I think you can take action as an employer to do something about it. And it might be that ultimately you have to manage, you know, the coasters within your business and find a way to exit them from the business carefully and legally. Um, but I think it is a big headache for employers, and I think it is something that is on the rise, um, uh, sadly, across a number of different industries. And I don't think there's a particularly easy answer for any of this, but clearly the sort of stick and carrot do come into play and trying to get the balance between the two, I think, is really important. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I suppose there's a real role, though, isn't there, for line managers to actually pick up on this. And that's not always easy, is it? Because people that are good at coasting, if I can put it that way, are often good at disguising it as well. So, you know, their name may be all over a particular project, but they've actually done very little um, on it. So that that's quite a difficult issue as well, isn't it, for employers yeah. to deal with? Yeah, really difficult. And I think it's important that businesses support the line managers in sort of training them in order to, you know, to recognise that and how to manage performance generally. So, you know, it's certainly something that we're uh, helping line managers with in our uh, back to basics, basics modules. But, you know, clearly you can't just set a line manager loose and expect him or her to just crack on with it. It's important that they're given some guidance from the business. And you know what? If they can succeed in getting that extra one, two, three percent out of somebody, then in my view, they're doing well, uh, yeah. particularly in difficult economic times. So, yeah. you, you know, normally people are motivated by paying pay benefits alone. But I've seen a number of recent surveys where pay doesn't feature in the top five um, things as to, you know, why people do what they do and, 
you know why they're motivated so mm. you know i think it's i think it would be wrong just to assume that that, that pay is is just purely the motivating factor for why people are doing what they're doing or not yeah. as the case may be yeah yeah i think it links to flexibility and all sorts of things doesn't it yeah definitely that's brilliant thank you glenn no, thank you. Well, that's it for today. Um, if you want to hear more about our latest employment law updates alongside our expert commentary, then tune in in a fortnight. And thanks very much for listening. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.